Optus slammed after nationwide outrage as comms minister demands answers. Also on this episode, has the Melbourne Cup lost its media value? And the aftermath of the Qantas AGM. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, a discussion of everything under Australia's media and marketing umbrella. I'm Neil Griffiths, the editor of Mumbrella, and I'm joined today by Mumbrella publisher Adam Lang. Hello, Neil. Hello, Adam. And deputy editor Nathan Jolly. Hello. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you, Neil. Um, look, just before we kick off the show, a quick reminder that second release tickets for Mumbrella 360, which is going to be headlined by former Nike CEO Greg Hoffman, close at midnight. That's the 8th of November. So get your tickets now at mumbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella 360. All right. So the top story today uh, is actually still ongoing as we record this at just after 1 p.m. Of course, the Optus outage, which started at around 4 a.m. on Wednesday morning. Uh, For those who don't know, Optus customers have not been able to make calls or use the internet. This issue is yet to be fixed as we record this. Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosemarin was interviewed by ABC and was unable to give any update, though she insisted there is no evidence at this stage that a cyber attack, which rings alarm bells to the attack that happened last year. So straight off the bat, Adam, your thoughts on this? Oh, it's obviously a disaster, right? It is a, a critical failure in their systems. They'll regret it. And Kelly Bayer Rosmarin has apologised to customers. But you're looking at it. Optus has a brand proposition of yes. And so this is a clear no, right? So you can't get <laughs> service. You can't make calls. You can't use the internet. The things that we take is almost oxygen these days. You know, we're living very mobile, digital lives. We're used to having this utility in our pocket. But we can't get it at the moment through Optus. And so they'll be feeling the pressure of this in an immense way. I think they've done the right thing. They've explained that they have an issue. They've apologised and they're working on it. But the the questions that remain amongst all of us is they can't say what the cause is. And they know people are working on it, but they don't therefore know what the fix is. You know, if you don't know what's wrong, it's very hard to know how to fix it. But that team will be working furiously. They know on the one hand that their customers are not being served well, This is the opposite of what they would hope to achieve. All they can do is get in front of it, get on top of it and start explaining things. I think they've done that, but this would have to be excruciating to live through. I mean, if you can imagine yourself at the centre of this on the Optus side, it's really difficult. Customers are frustrated. You know that you're causing it. You want to fix it. Nathan, we covered the story this morning. We were running around very frantically. It was a very hot newsroom. There have been very few updates from Optus. I think, again, as of this recording, there's been about three actual statements from Optus. Their media center actually crashed this morning as well. And then you told me about the Down Detector website. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so basically it's where you go to check if other people are complaining that something isn't working, which is usually a good sign that it's not working. So it can be anything from, you know, the ComBank app to Instagram to... Entire mm. phone networks, yeah. And so that was, yeah, that peaked at well at about 4 a.m. People had started going on there. I love these people, by the way, who wake <laughs> up at 4 a.m., can't use their phone, immediately jump on another device, go on to Down Detector, report it. So bravo to all those people. But, yeah, by 5 a.m. it was just peaking out. and So a problem shared, Nathan, yeah. this may be a problem <laughs> halved. I don't know if that actually works in this situation, no. but they definitely wanted to share it. Well, as um, the CEO said this morning, connectivity is important for Optus customers. <laughs> That's a line that has been used roughly 48 times this morning, I think. It is what I use Optus for mostly. <laughs> and, again, there hasn't been a lot of updates. The Optus CEO has said that they don't really have any information to share. Comms Minister Michelle Rowland has suggested this is a, quote, deep network issue, but uh, even she has demanded answers from Optus. 
Adam, thinking back to 2022 and the cyber attack, I believe, which had been September last year, and when we think about crisis comms, what are your thoughts on the situation so far and how Optus have dealt with this? Again, we're almost hitting the 12-hour mark since these outages began and mm. we still don't know. Yeah, it's so we can reflect back even further than that and with the, the World Cup where Optus was referred to as Floptus. You know, not the latest uh, World Cup where the Matildas prevailed so well, but going back to the former World Cup where they couldn't actually get the signal out and they had to give it to a TV network to broadcast uh, the tournament. So that was that was difficult. That's only in recent years. This time with uh, the World Cup, they did a brilliant job. You know, there was no network issues. They built triple redundancy in it. They were prepared, prepared, prepared. They did really well. You look back to the data breach and release of information about their customers, which is, again, excruciating. Uh, I think then they got on, on top of that, but it still caused harm. And we know that they lost customers because of that. So, you know, connectivity is everything in, in this environment. And you'd have to say it will cause some customers again to review whether they should stay with Optus or not. And so, you know, the, the first obligations that you have is obviously to your customers. And I think they're doing that. They're telling us what they know. They've recognised the impact that it has. And they're trying to fix it and keep us informed, as difficult as all of this situation is. But they also know that, you know, once this has happened, it does cause brand damage. You know, when you have your connectivity interrupted like this, people remember it, unfortunately. They don't remember the 99% of times that they kept your service. They remember this really impactful one where they perhaps couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't pay that shopping bill. They couldn't do so many things that they just rely on doing easily. Uh, today. So, yeah, this is a work in progress. I think they're doing the right things and they will know that there'll be an outcome from this, meaning that they have to make known the issue, they have to make known the repair, and they have to, I think, uh, disclose to customers what they think they should do to acknowledge what has happened. And so they can build back their relationship with customers, but this is very, very difficult and it'll take some time and a lot of precise and very skilled work for that team to bind together and to do it. I think the last point is within that team, this is when you really need your key executives, your board and everyone in that company feeling cohesive that we're on this. And so that internal communication, the bit that we're not seeing, I expect that that is very fulsome at the moment. At the risk of just trashing everything you just said, <laughs> glass half Go full ahead. of course, I love that approach. Thank you. But pure speculation because that's all we really have at this point. If this was another cyber attack just over 12 months after it happened, is there a way out for Optus? Wow, such a good question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, without obfuscating, it, it does depend, you know, if it is a data breach, if it is something that we've never seen before, could they have prevented it? I think all customers will be reasonable saying, okay, well, if we understand the information and this was something unprecedented, you have to acknowledge that. But if this is a repeat issue, like if this is a known gap not fixed, that could be very difficult to navigate through. They'll need to bring out Sam Kerr <laughs> to just juggle a football and everyone will watch her and just forget what happened. <laughs> it's not a bad strategy, to be fair. What, look over here. Yeah. Check, it, check it out. <laughs> this it's is a Matilda. magnificent football <laughs> Remember here. the Matildas brought to you by Optus Sport? As always, keep an eye on mumbrella.com.au for updates on this story as they progress. Moving on to another big story this week. Uh, of course, the 2023 Melbourne Cup went ahead on Tuesday afternoon. Um, so just for context before we get into it, this was the final year that Channel 10 broadcasted the race after a five-year partnership. 
we actually wrote a piece back in September about this. Nathan, can you tell listeners a bit about it and what the mindset was then and what it is now about the cup in general? Well, I think, well, first of all, Tabcorp have the rights to it. So they paid allegedly 20 million, 25 million a year for six years. And they have the broadcast rights, which they will then attempt to on-sell, much like Optus did with the World Cup. But they are demanding 50% share of all wager in advertising, which basically gets rid of all the other advertising that pays for the cup. And they also want to have live gambling odds and stuff on the screen and focus more on that and less on the fashion. And so because of that, they're finding it very hard to find a commercial network partner. Ten have pulled out. They said they're not going to be part of it. They were actually quite brutal about it. They said, it's become clear that the nature of the agreement between Tabcorp and the VRC would require a move towards a core racing and wagering focused broadcast product. Given this likely change, Network 10 considered the preferences of its viewers and advertisers and politely declined to move forward with the process. So that's where we stand at the moment. The Melbourne Cup next year has not got a home and ratings have been terrible for it. So, What were the ratings for 2023? So this year, 1.1 million people watched in the capital cities and 1.68 million watched nationally. And to compare that, last year was the lowest on record and that was 1.02 in the five caps and 1.35. So it is above that, but it's below 2021. Right. So it's basically the second lowest in the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah. And prior to the race yesterday, we ran a story um, about, well, questioning, has the race lost its media value? You can check it on the Umbrella website. Uh, we know networks are cautious to go near it, given the calls to reduce gambling, advertising, and animal welfare. Uh, as the seasoned veteran of the group, Adam, and I wrote that down specifically for you, so I apologize in advance. Please don't. From a media perspective, how has that attitude changed? What is the perspective of the Melbourne Cup? Say, using Nathan's point 20 years ago, what was the attitude from a media perspective for the Melbourne Cup then to now? So it was literally the race that stopped the nation, and I don't think it can claim that anymore. Wow. So... I know that Victoria has a public holiday and it's still a massive industry. There's something like you know, $900 million annually available in racing prize money. There's still many, many tens of thousands of people employed. There are people that love horses within, you know, that industry, of course, and, you know, they're trying to improve animal welfare. We know that gambling is a pervasive issue and Australia is recognised as having a greater issue with gambling than most other places in the world. So... It is astounding to tourists when they come here, how much gambling, you know, we actually have. And so, you know, it is really, I guess, recognising a few things. One, it's not really the race that stops the nation anymore, that perhaps in terms of our appetite for horse racing, it is changing. Our appetite for gambling and advertising of gambling is obviously changing. So this is an industry in flux, really. And so I would look at it and go, there's so much to like about the cup and for me, professionally and personally, I think parties are fantastic. <laughs> you know, I what think, a take! Yeah, parties are great. When when you can celebrate and be together, you know, we've just been so restricted in recent years with COVID and so on. To see a mass gathering of what ninety thousand people was it at the course at Flemington yesterday? Yeah, no? yeah, a little under, but yeah, just basically. under ninety thousand people who are excited. 
you know, dress up, want to have a great day out with friends and, and really make a, a life memory of attending the event. I think that's fabulous. And I think there's still lots to love about that. We know there were bands on, there's entertainment and performances. It's a show. And I think there's lots to love about that alongside the horse racing. So it's not just horse racing, but I think the, the summary is it just is, in my mind, doesn't seem to be the race that stops the nation anymore. Does it tank celebrities when they do that? I think Mark Wahlberg was here a few years ago right. for Ladbrokes. Matt Damon was spotted here this week. Melanie C of Spice Girls here was, I think, doing a DJ set yesterday. Does that kind of taint the image as well, do we think? So it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this too, Nathan. Mine is if it was Snoop Dogg, I don't know that anything would taint his image, right? Yeah, he could go to a horse he race. He can and do anything and it's <laughs> it fine. It would still be okay. Yeah. So I think it depends and I think it depends on the nature of the person and how they embrace the event. You know, I think Snoop Dogg could embrace any party, you know, so, <laughs> but it's not all about Snoop Dogg, surely. Nathan, what do you think? Well, it also has to do with the age of the person's fans, I think. So right. if you have a younger fan base, they seem to be a bit like kind of, you know, oddly against animal cruelty and gambling and alcohol ruining lives. So it's kind of got that stigma attached to it. I think it's it's aging out, like cigarette advertising aged out right. and like a lot of things age out. Like I just think it doesn't have legs, pardon the pun. And Maya pulled out of sponsoring, like being the major sponsor of the fashion. They've been doing that since 1983. Mm. So that's a major, major move. That's like a four-decade thing that they had going that they've just decided that it doesn't align with their brand anymore. You'll also notice as well, David Jones and Maya advertised their spring fashions, not their racing fashions anymore. So subtle difference that speaks volumes. Yeah. And, and on the gambling note in particular, like given that SBS recently announced the opt-out option for SBS on demand for gambling and alcohol ads, that was a move that was widely praised by most industry stakeholders. So open question for the group do we think that the melbourne cup has a long-term future or do, do you see it winding down no i don't see it lasting i i would say it's going to be gone within a decade and the reason will be money it'll be sponsors won't want to go behind it gambling advertising by that time will be banned on tv i'm quite sure like they're going pretty hard after it at the moment and i just think the tides are changing and you know whether they can rescue it some way and turn it into some other event that doesn't have the whipping of horses as its main event like maybe that will help it but no it just seems to be you know it's like it's like bullfighting it's like once upon a time sure Hemingway loved it but come on <laughs> let's be real from my point of view and I think Nathan this is where yours and my views overlap I think you know there's always a place for strong brands now I think this strong brand can evolve and I think it's much more could it be about a, the event rather than the horse racing. You know, yeah. the, the Melbourne Festival or Melbourne Cup, you know, it's because there's so much love. This facility at, at Flemington is magnificent. It is gorgeous. And then they had a good day, a bit windy, sure, but hot, clear, lovely day for, for a, a festival. And so I think in the way it evolves. And so it's, it's similar if you look at a casino uh, model, there is so much that's great around a casino and, yes, they're trying to get people to gamble more, but you've got excellent theatres, excellent restaurants, excellent retail, excellent venues, hotels. There's so much that can be good around it. It doesn't have to be just about the race. And I think that that future should probably be 
considered more holistically around what can appeal to more people. More Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I would, I would, that would suit me. Yeah, an open air Snoop Dogg concert <laughs> every November. Was it la 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 la? <laughs> we'll take a short break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Marumbella cast with myself, Neil Griffiths, and my guests slash hosts, Adam Lang and Nathan Jolly. Nathan, you weren't here for last week's episode, but we kind of deep dived into the Southern Cross Austereo annual general meeting. We thought that was heated. <laughs> Enter Qantas. Their AGM went ahead last Friday. Uh, Adam, can you provide us with a quick recap? Because I was kind of going through, like, how do we just get to a quick up to speed? I didn't know where to begin. Sure. So... I know this was on Friday and already it seems like just a few days ago was a very long time ago because so much is happening. Mm -hmm. And you know, even today, as you've talked about, Neil, it's a busy newsroom here at Mumbrella, right? So we observed the Qantas AGM. It uh, was full contact, as a sporting event might describe <laughs> it. There were people in the crowd asking very pointed questions. Now, normally in a, in a shareholder annual general meeting, it's quite refined and respectable and pleases and thank yous and there was some of that but boy there were some direct questions you know like how much can you justify the fact that you as a board have presided over all of this destruction of investor value in the last 12 months you've gone from high profit one of the most trusted brands in the country to actually being one of the most distrusted brands in the country in 12 months and a share price that's descended you know what basically please explain to the board. And that is, if you can imagine yourself on the board table going, please explain, as in you haven't done your job well enough. That, that is a tough position to be in. They knew to expect that. You know, the level of public discourse on this has been huge. They got an 83% vote against their remuneration report. Now, that is the second highest in history. Wow. And happened, you know, the, the first, the record was a bank after the Banking Royal Commission had just decimated so much of the stories within that industry. So it is an extremely large protest vote and they'll be looking at next year's remuneration report going, we have to get this accepted. We have to get all investors on side because if they get a second protest vote at the remuneration report in a year's time at next year's annual general meeting, the board spills, they get turfed and they have to all apply for re-election. So this is in a way of saying you know, if you lose once, it's a very strong warning. You lose twice, you're out of your gig and you have to reapply for your job as a board member. So it was full contact. It was brutal. Uh, and I think there were many who left that AGM still dissatisfied at what they'd heard. They'd acknowledged that the board and the CEO, Vanessa Hudson, was apologetic, uh, acknowledgement that they need to do better. But what the feeling I got was that they do not feel that they are yet showing that they are capable of doing better. And so that is still with something yet to prove. Well, you mentioned right there that they were apologetic. We mentioned the SCA AGM at the start. They got thrown a lot of heated questions, but they gave the generic, thank you for your question. Qantas were actively apologizing as people were saying, quit, resign. Mm. Can you recall a bigger fall from grace than Qantas in the last 12 months? What we're talking about is as quickly as such an established, renowned brand to now. No, and not just in the last 12 months. It's rare in my knowledge of, of publicly listed company history, you know, that you see something like this. Uh, you don't have decades of remuneration report votes. You have some season, but they've not forever been thus. And so 
you know, there's only a certain amount of time where we can compare that benchmark and saying like for like. But it is, as I said, this is the second worst ever and it is rare that this happens. And in the last 12 months, incredibly rare. I mean, you, you might see this sort of thing when companies go bust and creditors meetings and, you know, people who are left with shareholdings that are valueless really want to display their their emotion and hurt uh, over what they've lost financially. But th- this is pretty rare. Mm. We wrote about this on the Mumbrella website. Nathan, you actually wrote this story. Among the many bombshells in that AGM, the board confirmed almost 400000 was spent on painting the Yes logos on Qantas planes, and that was a move that was slammed at the time. What did the board have to say about it? Okay, so they spent $370,000 on painting the logo onto three planes and flights for officials involved in the Yes campaign, which, you know, I'm sure they got those at cost. So (laughs) how much can it really cost to paint the logos on? And the chairman, Richard Goida, said, we knew there would be a diverse set of views, but we thought it was important to endorse the Yes campaign. And that's basically how he acknowledged the fact that they spent, you know, close to $400,000 painting logos on a plane. The the voice referendum does seem like a lifetime ago now. In hindsight, was that the right call? Do, do we appreciate when brands take a stance on these kind of political issues? Or in hindsight with Qantas, is it best to just stick to what you do? Well, I think it's good. I always think it's good when brands take a view like that. I thought it was really good that they did that. The costing is what's ridiculous, especially in a year where there's just so much turmoil with them. They should have found a way to do that a lot cheaper because it is just, if you look at it as well, they're quite small logos. It's not like they've designed the entire plane up They haven't used any special paint as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, it just seems a bit stupid to have spent that much money in a year when, you know, their share price has gone down 16% in the last six months. Like, you can't be just splashing money around. And Adam, your thoughts? Uh, I am all for companies advocating a view where it suits their brand. And so what do I mean by that? Whether it's Optus, yes, or Qantas, still call Australia home, or, you know, Spirit of Australia is really what they claim if they are doing something that absolutely aligns with that. So when when you're looking at your brand, who are your customers? They are obviously, in Qantas's case, they're paying clients. They are obviously their partners, you know, airports, sponsors, advertisers, people who contribute to their in-flight channels, everyone involved in making Qantas a functioning airline. And there's also, of course, their staff. And so all of those stakeholder groups, I, I think, are customers. So you have your, your paying customers, your partners and your staff. And so where a view aligns with that, your brand proposition, in this case, the spirit of Australia, I think you, you can advocate a view. So it's, it's the right of every company to do so. And, of course, there are risks in that. There are risks of doing it that you will not please everybody, of course. And so... I think that's absolutely righteous that they consider whether or not they advocate a view and, and go ahead with it on that basis as long as it suits the brand proposition, as long as it suits their customers. But it, but it can't be personal. It can't be because what I think that I'm going to advocate that on the company's behalf. That is wrong. You know. So in this case, I don't think Qantas did that, so I fully respect their uh, right to, to advocate a view. Uh, in terms of $370,000, I never <laughs> knew... Airline paint costs so much. Like <laughs> it was staggering. Yeah. So I have to think, as I think you're suggesting, Nathan, that, that much of this must have been in flights. And were they all at the pointy end of the plane? Because that just seems like yeah. such a staggering amount of money on on flight value. So 
you know, I was surprised by the costs. Yeah, unless they commissioned Banksy to do it or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of crisis comms, we, we kind of opened this podcast talking about all the craziness happening with Optus at the moment. Anyone more involved in crisis comms right now than Qantas? Adam, how do they get back on track? Is it as simple as refining things and going again, or is it we need to literally clean house and go again? So I think uh, what we saw at the AGM was that investors regard the actions of Qantas to date as insufficient. They don't accept that they've gone far enough. So, yes, the apology has been stated and heard. Yes, the statement of intent to do better has been made and heard, but we haven't yet seen the actions. And so I think, you know, if you look to one of the most high-profile topics at the moment, it is the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission uh, investigation into what has been called ghost flights. You know, the fact that 8,000 flights were booked by customers that were never going to take off. And Qantas's clarification or Qantas's communication on that has been that what they sold is a bunch of options for someone to get from place A to place B. And I just don't think that matches against the customer expectation. And certainly on my own case, I've never booked a bunch of options in my mind. I've booked a flight from a place to another place at a certain time. And so it just doesn't match to me that that's what I've bought from them. Like, so I, I think that is one area that is high profile and still an open question, possibly a risk, that the ACCC will find that, that Qantas hasn't done enough to, to match the customer expectation. Indeed, they haven't done enough to pass regulation requirements. So I think that's a risk and it's one of the most obvious cases where they say, hey, did you, when you apologise, did you mean it? When you said you have to do better, did you show it? And is that evidenced by the way that you've argued this legal case with the ACCC? Do we think this is a, you know, a 12-month turnaround or is this a five-year plan to get Qantas, make Qantas great again? Well, make Qantas great again. So <laughs> I can picture the caps now. Maqua. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, look, it was you've seen a, a descent. I shouldn't use that term no, in a flying no, story, pun, should I? Puns are great. The trust index, you know, the Edelman Trust measure has gone from top brand or, you know, one of the top brands in the country most trusted to least trusted in a year. And you'd love to think that it could be reclaimed in a year, but I really doubt it. You know, trust takes, as they say, a lifetime to earn and can be lost in a moment. And so I think it'll be challenging for them to do it in a year. But You'd argue that that should start right now, and I don't think we've seen that yet. We know that Richard Goiter has said he will step down before the next AGM, so he won't be at the next annual general meeting, but he's still the chairman and a, a new chairman is yet to be selected. So it probably takes a changing of personnel to help to achieve that. But I, I think alongside that process of turnover at the board level and the chairman's role or the chair's role, uh, we should see the brand deliver every day. And so, you know, we saw high prices during COVID. They were almost mystical in terms of their justification on high prices. They didn't feel right. I know that fuel prices are expensive, but we should be seeing really affordable competitive offerings and not to be made to feel like, hey, we're almost captive to a two-airline country at the moment with, I should say, you know, Qantas, Jetstar, Virgin, um, Rex, we're not captive to a two airline model, but it, sometimes it feels that way. And so it doesn't feel like Qantas is competing for our business. I think it should feel like that. 
And, and really that's an everyday thing. And so I don't think we've seen that yet. It does feel like by the time we do this podcast next week, a whole heap will have changed as far as the Qantas situation. Oh, it'd be so interesting to see if that's true. And to Adam's point, Goida has resigned, but it's not going to be for, what, another six, almost 12 months? Yeah, so when he announced it, he would step down during the course of 2024. Yeah. So we're not expecting him to be part of next week, next year's annual general meeting. Well, on a positive note as well, it seems to be kind of working because shares are up 10% in the last month. And you'll notice a month ago was when the two board members and Goida announced that they would be stepping down. So, you know... The perception is shifting, at least in the stock market, which mm. is, you know, it's a good sign. It is. And I think too, you know, each of us would want a really strong, competitive airline market in Australia. Like speaking for myself, I love travel. I think it, for, for professional and personal reasons, it's great to be together with other people in person. So I want to be able to do that and um, I want a strong, healthy market because of that. So I hope that they can prevail through this. This should not be the destruction of a brand. We should be really critically evaluating how they're going to get this brand back on track, and uh, and we hope they do. As Qantas have proved, a lot can change in 12 months. That's all the time we've got for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. This is the Mumbrella Cast. Remember to hit follow on the podcast and head along to mumbrella.com.au for more info on everything we've talked about today. I'm Neil Griffiths. Thanks for your company, and we'll see you next time. 